Welcome to Video Store. My name is Sam Mulberry. Today we are talking about the 1937 film, The Grand Illusion. So let's step into Baird Fisher's Video Store. Baird, how you doing? Doing great, Sam. Barrett, this is our second uh, Jean Renoir film. Um, and I was a I was a f- big fan of Rules of the Game. And I, I have to say, this movie makes me appreciate Rules of the Game even more. And that doesn't mean I didn't like this movie. It means thinking about these movies in conversation brings both of, sheds light on both of them. So he mm-hmm. makes this in 37, Rules of the Game in 39. Um, so I was... I. I found this film to be really fascinating and there's um, so much that we can talk about that. I'm going to start by saying, I'm sure we are not going to get to everything that you could talk <laughs> about with this movie. Uh, to start with, what is your history with this film? You know, my history of this film is like, is a mystery, Sam, because I, I was pretty convinced that I had seen it before. Cause I remember when, uh, when my kids were younger and uh, my wife wanted to show it to them, I remember thinking, Oh yeah, I saw grand illusion and I thought it was great. Um, and at the time that Amy and the kids watched it, the, uh, the new print wasn't available. So she mm-hmm. was saying, you know, she'd seen the, they, they watched the old version. She said the print was so bad, we couldn't even tell what was in the cage. But I have to say, when I watched it this time, not a single scene rang a bell for me. So I, I thought I'd seen it years ago, but maybe I haven't. I don't know. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. so l- l- let's interrogate that a little bit. So what did you, what were you expecting and what stood out to you? Well, I, I mean, I did, I did, I was aware of the, of the basic plot. I, I have to say that. Um, but yeah, what, what stood out to me, I, I guess, is just to, especially coming to it from having done Paths of Glory last time, you know, that it's a war film that doesn't have any war scenes in it at all. Um, and, I, and I did remember there was about relationships between the officers, but um, I didn't remember, I mean, at all the way in which um, Renoir is kind of playing with the differences between class division and national division and linguistic division, all those things we'll talk about. I didn't remember any of that, really. Yeah, I I, I went into this with, uh, with no sense other than, I mean... This is a movie I'm aware of because of teaching on the First World War, um, and I was, I I was kind of blown away by how inventive this movie is. How I mean, we'll talk about the story structure of this movie, but he a couple times just pulls the rug out from you and the characters entirely, and uh, it, that felt it felt so novel. Like like I don't know that movies do that now. <laughs> I mean, this is this is a fairly bold setup for a movie. Um, and this is one um, I feel like I, I want to talk both about filmmaking and storytelling in this um, mm-hmm. because I, I don't know if I, I don't think I've told this story before uh, on, on this podcast, but when I was in graduate school, I took a number of art history courses and one of my favorite courses, I was with a professor at the university of Minnesota named Caroline Marling and she would give us exams we, we were studying 19th century landscape painter, American landscape painters. And uh, she would give us these exams where, where we would, she would show us a painting we had never seen before. Mm-hmm. And you needed to write an essay that was basically trying to make a case for why it had to be this particular painter based on what you saw in the painting, even though you'd never seen the painting before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was such a, it was, they were oddly like fun exams because you could get the wrong painter, but if you made the case, you could, you know, you could still do well yeah. on it. Um this is a movie that as I was watching it, I'm like, if I didn't see the credits to this movie and I didn't know this was Jean Renoir, even though I've only seen rules of the game, I think I could have gotten this one right. Like, huh. uh, like, like this, there are so many things that he's doing here that I'm like, Oh, this, this, this feels like that, that same filmmaker. So I'm going to point to three and maybe there's some, we can add to this. And I think we can get into all of these things. Um, for one thing, as you pointed out, the themes about sort of class distinctions, but also class parallels and mirrorings and things like that. Uh, the camera moves for sure. The, um, I want to get into to what he's doing because this the more I watch this and would go back and I was I, I did a lot because it's on Criterion. I did a lot of going back to the movie and scrubbing through to find a particular scene and watching it again. And whenever I would do that, I, I would realize, oh, stuff that I thought like, oh, he's got like four or five kind of masterful takes where he's doing this Renoir thing. And then I realized, no, actually every scene is this. He, he's doing some, some, some pretty crazy things with his camera moves and setups. And then the casting. I mean, this, this movie shares a lot of actors with rules of the game. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. 
and uh and especially some people that i are pretty beloved to me at this point so i was so happy to see uh see some of these folks um show up again is there anything you would add to that list in terms of things that make this a particularly a renoir film well i i guess what i would add and, and this is kind of a broad thematic statement that i think covers a lot of things in the film and that is that i think one of the key um quotes from rules of the game applies to this film and as the terrible thing about life is everybody has its own reasons. Mm. And, and to me, that that expresses the, the double-edged sword of Renoir's humanism. I mean, Renoir has a broad humanism in the best sense of the word, and that is, and that, is that Renoir is really interested in the, in the various ways in which humanity is, has commonalities. But he also, so that, that's, but the terrible thing about that is that those are also some of the things that se- separate us. Uh, and and create things like war. So and that's why I really love about Renoir. I don't think he's a sentimentalist. I think he's a humanist. There's there is sentiment there, but he's also pretty clear-eyed. He's actually after all, is a World War One vet himself. Um, so so to me, that's the one of the ways in which this film is a kind of precursor of rules of the game in that sense. Absolutely. So let, let's start with some of the visuals, and then we can get into the story. Um, the the big thing that jumped out at me, and 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 my my lasting memory visually of Rules of the Game is uh, Renoir having these really long takes where the camera keeps moving, and he'll do things like start with something that feels like a static setup, and instead of cutting away, the mm-hmm. camera will sort of float away, maybe follow a character, maybe pick up a different character and move to another static setup and if you don't if you're not thinking about it you're thinking oh he just cut from this to this but actually he's moving through and then these these scenes have so many people moving in them that these both of these movies feel choreographed like dance numbers where uh, and this is the biggest thing when i would scrub through the movie i kept realizing in every one of these scenes where i wanted to listen to these two people have a conversation if you look at the rest of the scene everybody's doing something and everybody's doing something kind of interesting or true to their character, even if they're not really in the scene. You know, in some ways I think about this, like uh, in some ways it's like the way you would do a stage play, right. Where you have, maybe you have the central action, but like other characters are there. And if you're a viewer, you're allowed to kind of move around. Now here, the camera is the eye, but -hmm. the camera moves around kind of the way the human eye does a little bit um, more than, you know, shot, reverse shot and things like that. It's more the camera moving around or it's like looking at a big complex mural where you're standing pretty close to it. And you, and to take it in, you actually have to kind of move around. And sometimes there are reveals as the camera is moving around things. You didn't realize you were going to see in this scene shows up there. And he definitely does this. I mean, there are, there are some, some, masterpiece shots and rules of the game where he does that in this movie uh especially when you start looking for it you realize that that he is he does this all of the time um so he he both lets your eye wander but he also is moving your eye around and i think that 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 is uh is is pretty stunning to look at yeah you know before greg tolland and uh and arson wells made a kind of made deep focus a, a in depth of field an important element in citizen kane um uh, Renoir was already doing that uh and in fact that's one of the reasons why the great French uh, film critic Andre Bassan is so um holds Renoir in such high regard because for Bassan you know Bassan is a, a proponent of realism in the film and part of what realism means it can mean a lot of things but part of what it means for somebody like Bassan and for somebody like Renoir is a respect for the reality of of space and we've talked in the past about other directors who who, who value space, and Renoir is one of those. And so, as a, as a result, um, two things. As a result, one is that the few sharp, the few real cuts in this film, as, as a result, have even more of an effect. So, when you cut from the discussion about um, Marshall and Baudou going up in the plane, and then you have a hard, then you have a sudden cut to the German uh, uh, headquarters. I mean, that has a real impact as a result the other thing that you get with Renoir is and to me this is really interesting is it's not only the notion that the depth of field goes deep away from the viewer but also that there is space in front of the viewer that the characters see and you can't see 
Mm-hmm. So, so that is really important. Again, in the scene when Bondu and Marichal have been shot down and they're having that meal with the German officers and they all turn and they look like towards you because they see this, um, uh, this bouquet coming towards them, but you can't see it. So to me, it's, 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 it's one of the ways in which Renoir tells us this is a, a fully three or even four dimensional world, both behind and in front of these characters. And that is one of the ways in my mind in which he, he is such a realist. Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to point out a couple of these scenes and and it's interesting cuz thinking about them he's doing that trick again. So one of the one of the ones that comes up a lot as I was reading about this is when the uh the French soldier walks out dressed as a woman and you get this it's almost like a tableau because everybody's perfectly still too yeah. and it just it's it's moving across this room watching everybody see him walk out and kind of react but they're also sort of frozen mm-hmm. and it moves through this room until you get to him so that's an example of there's this reveal and mm-hmm. we're not quite even sure what the reveal is going to be um and and that's that's kind of an amazing shot my favorite of these is um when uh the we it's the shot that starts with the posting about uh Fort Dumont being mm-hmm. taken by the Germans and then the camera moves and you're in your outside where that's posted and it moves into this room where the Germans are celebrating a guy's playing guitar and they're singing. And then you keep moving over and you see the door and a German officer walks out of that room. And then we pick up the German officer and follow him. And he walks by the French office, the French officer's barracks mm-hmm. window and all of our characters are standing there. And then they have a conversation about it. And it's like, that's all one, I mean, that's balletic. And I mean, that is, it's so amazing. And it's telling, it's telling the story because first we're what we, we see the news, we see the Germans celebrate it. And then we realize the French have been watching the Germans celebrate it. And that's what their conversation is about. And instead of cutting or things like that, he is moving you through this space. Uh, and, and, and that that's maybe my favorite shot of this movie. I think that, that that's just pretty stunning. And not to belabor a point, Sam, but I mean that that those are very Wellesian camera moves, and mm-hmm. uh, you know I guess we have to say now is the time to mention that when uh, Orson Welles was on Dick Cavett's show in, the, in 1970, Cavett asked him a question about well, Cavett asked the question actually like what five or six films would you would you preserve if you could only preserve five or six and they couldn't be your own, and somehow Wells turned it into a question about what films would you take on the arc typical wells move and he named grand illusion uh and uh, and something else <laughs> yes and and it's funny because I've, I've heard uh, i heard that story come up so many times and um and there's always like speculation about the other movie but it's like you he never names the other movie you know right <laughs> right uh it's speaking of wells but the other version of this shot that i love that feels um, like it could have come out of Citizen Kane is when we get introduced to Rolfenstein's room, his office mm-hmm. or his room. And it, I think it starts with a dissolved onto the crucifix. Yeah. And then it's like, we move through a still life for a while of like all of the items that are, you know, and this feels this feels like Citizen Kane, right? These are the items that are going to dis- uh, explain this person to you, and we see all of these things which are which show you. Well, he's an intellectual because he reads, and we see, mm-hmm. you know, these other things. We see this 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 photograph of this woman, and we see, you know, all these things, and and then it it finally moves over to this servant who's preparing these white gloves, and you you hear Rothenstein's voice for, but you don't see him, and eventually the camera moves, and we see. <laughs> Uh, Eric von Stroheim, who was in the beginning of the movie, but now we see that that time has passed, and we we it's the first time we see him in the like back brace ne- neck brace um, setup, and that's that is again it's this one long take of like revealing revealing somebody who's now entering the movie. I mean it's um, it's a, that that's that's this pretty great moment, and again it feels like like he's. Uh, taking time going through a still life to you know uh and and i i I, that that shot also just gets me very excited there's a it seems to me there's a very small step from uh von stroheim in this film to von stroheim and sunset boulevard yes um but but we should say sam you know that um von stroheim was one of um uh, one of Renoir's kind of heroes actually uh renoir was uh was deeply influenced by 
uh, von Stroheim's silent films. Uh, Stroheim made a film in 22 called Foolish Wives that Renoir saw like about 10 times. And so it was like, it was like he was kind of hiring his idol uh, in this role. And when von Stroheim came in, he ended up, um, you know, Renoir was one of those people, he didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't improvise his films, but his scripts were always kind of open to revision. So von Stroheim, so the script actually ended up being quite different from what Jean Gabin had signed on to do, interestingly enough. And, and some of that was von Stroheim came in and he was the one that kind of expanded the character. He was the one that kind of, uh, he came up with the idea of the neck brace and kind of the whole presentation of him of him when he's in the, uh, when he's run, running the, uh, the the prisoner of war camp. Uh, and so it's, it's really von Stroheim who kind of is not exactly co-director, but he really kind of helps to create a lot of elements of the character of, of Raufenstein uh, and the relationship with, with Beaulieu. Yeah, no, I'm I'm very interested in 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 directors who are who who become actors or who end up acting in things um because you because they bring you know the fact that they are filmmakers themselves into it. So and 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 and, and the idea of, of a director hiring another director to act yes. in their movies also really interesting and also shows a kind of um <laughs> either humility or hubris to be like well I, I can direct this director you know like that that's really interesting well maybe, maybe the most famous example of that is one of your favorite films and that is carol reed uh bringing orson wells into the third man and mm -hmm. there's a lot of as you as you know there's a lot of conversation about how much of the third man and maybe is wells himself kind of responsible for so in grand illusion as i said we have uh von stroheim designing the brace which is a wonderful touch, right? I mean, he had, he had this this literally stiff stiff backed uh, man, um, uh, military man. Uh, he selects the monocle um, wearing, which of course is exactly with Baldu, uh, and then wearing the white gloves. Um, mm -hmm. That's all. These this is all von Stroheim's idea, and he may have even improvised some of the dialogue. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, the other the other type of shot that that I feel like he echoes in uh, Rules of the Game. Uh, is that both of these movies have a sequence of we're going to put on a show and it's shot like straight on from audience point of view. Mm -hmm. But then we also get the reverse shot of behind the performers looking at the audience from from behind the performers. So he, I went back and watched that scene in Rules of the Game. So I'm like, I think he does that there, too. Yeah. That also feels like like, oh, he. He did this thing and it looks great. So I'm going to do that again when I get to this, uh, when I get to get to my next film. Um, all of this makes me feel like um, if I needed to do a, a Jean Renoir parody, like it would be it would be hard to do because he does complex things. But it would be easy to do because he has particular moves that are like, oh, this seem, seems so iconically the kind of shot he would do. Let's try to figure out how to do that. This would be a great like film school project of shoot a shoot a Renoir scene shoot something that feels like this that has this kind of both camera movement and movement around that is uh pulling in different characters in different ways like it seems like that would be a fun filmmaking challenge that would be great that reminds me of you know one of our colleagues here at Bethel has her her painting students every year they do what she calls forgeries which mm -hmm. is of course a classic way to learn learn how to paint to copy a great painter so I love I love the idea that of that assignment there's there's some ways in which I might give it to Wes Anderson um, as well, at least at least for the tableau of the theatrical. Mm -hmm. No, so. absolutely. You you find people with very distinct styles, and actually, you learn. I mean, and like because I've done this with painting both myself and with students. You know, like that is how you learn how somebody think. You get into their head a little bit because you realize what are the problems that they had to wrestle with to pull this off. So yeah, I think doing studies of, of scenes and films like that would be really interesting. Um, so, I mean, we talked about some filmmaking things. Uh, this, this also touches on a lot of themes that, that, that seem to, to run through at least these two Renoir films. We talked about, uh, you hinted at class distinctions and divides. I mean, this movie is clearly, uh, clearly interested in this. And and I was reading about Renoir and, and um, he sort of had this notion that, um, that there's maybe more kinship among class or status lines than there is among, along uh, national or country lines, mm -hmm. you know? So he says like, like there's perhaps the, like the French laborer has more in common mm -hmm. with a Chinese laborer than he does with a French aristocrat. And this movie plays with that idea. You know, because we see uh, Baudu 
because we get we get these multiple prison camps and these different setups, I feel like in the first camp, Baldu is really interacting with his fellow Frenchmen a, a lot more, right? Um, and it and so it's about what to what degree is he one of them, and to what degree is there is there sort of uh, distance between them. So, for example, you know, all of the all of the French get involved in putting on this show, except for Baldu. He's the he's the one who's like, I, basically, he's like, I approve of what you're doing, especially to try to like, you know, shove something in the face of the Germans. But um, but this isn't this isn't my kind of thing, mm-hmm. right? But but and even the the interesting thing is the the movie starts with Marshall and and Baldu. You know, they they go up in this in this plane together. They get shot down, um, and they sort of enter into this world. So they're the people we've seen paired the most. And when we move to the second camp, they're they're paired again. And there's still this kind of distance. There's always this kind of distance between them, even though they should have this relationship sort of forged in the not literal trenches, but almost literal trenches, forged in war. Mm-hmm. Um, we get this 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 great moment where. Uh, you know, Marshall, this is in the second prison camp says, um, we've been together for 18 months and you still stand on ceremony. And Baldu says, I'm the same with my mother and my wife. Um, (laughs) now what's interesting is I don't know, I don't know French, but I did go back and listen to this scene because what's interesting is the actual thing he says is, uh, we've been together for 18 months and you still, Mm -hmm. you still use the word vu, like the formal and and mm-hmm. and and the response is I I use vu with my wife and with my mother. So it's this idea of like like there is this kind of still this kind of like formal distance between them, um, which points to one of the things that's so interesting about this. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit with um, uh, Battle of Algiers, and it was harder to tell. But like the way different languages play in this movie, I find I find really really interesting because it is a both a, a distinction of nationality and a, also a distinction of class. So we see Boldu and Rofenstein, they both speak French and German and English. And whenever they move into English, that's the indicator of this is this is sort of our secret language that nobody else can understand. So that so whenever whenever they're speaking in English, that is this sense of like we're really using aristocratic language that the other people aren't going to use because they why would they know English? Um, so, so that, that's something that, that exists only in that class level. And that's, you know, kind of compared with, uh, Marshall who only speaks French. So he, you know, we have these moments where he's trying to inform the British officers about the tunnel and the British officer doesn't speak French and, and, um, uh, Marshall doesn't speak, uh, doesn't speak English. And then we get that same thing later with, with Elsa, where he can't speak her language and she can't speak his um, and then Rosenthal exists in between because he mm-hmm. is of a low, of a he's middle class, not upper class, but he is rich and he's also um, more maybe cosmopolitan, like because his, you know, he talks about his parents are from these different places and he, you know, he is he is French and, you know, he makes the case he might be more French than some of them. Um, <laughs> but that that speaks to the kind of education that he has. He doesn't speak English, but he does speak German. So he becomes the kind of interpreter for Marshall. Well, as we'll talk about later, I don't want to jump there yet, Sam, as we'll talk about later with Elsa. Obviously, love is able to overcome the linguistic mm-hmm. barriers. So but I, w- I want to get back before we we move away too far from this. I want, I want to get back to how the. The class differences are present from the very early in the film. And that is, uh, again, when the two Frenchmen are at the table with the Germans and Marischal immediately has a relationship with the German mechanic, uh, the guy who cuts his meat, because they they have more in common as uh, because of their class than he does with, well, with Baldu because of class. So there are the nationality is not as important as the actual kind of vocation. And then later on, you get a repeat of that when he is talking with Rosenthal about Boldu. And, and Marischal says something like, yeah, he, he, he's a pretty good guy, but you know, there's still this kind of this distance. So here, uh, and this is of course is a theme that Renoir underscores in various ways. Here you have a Frenchman who is presumably a Christian of some kind, having this conversation with the Jewish character. And those religious differences 
are, are not as important again as the class differences between him and, and, and Dole do. So the, the film really kind of interrogates class. Uh, I mean, it interrogates a lot of borders, uh, but, it, but class is certainly the one it, it's most interested in. And then in terms of languages, everything you've already mentioned, plus I would add that we have this quick little shot of the Russian telling us how Russian nouns are declined, right? Yes. And 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 then and 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 then you have the 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 uh, the teacher who adores ancient Greek, right? Mm-hmm. And talks about you know um, about translating Pindar. So it's it's the, the film is just awful languages. And and I think Wenwar was one of the earlier directors, not the first, but one of the earlier directors to actually have different languages spoken on, on, on the screen. Um, and interestingly enough, von Stroheim actually knew very little German. and had That to blew learn. me away. Yeah, he had to learn his German phonetically. So. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and language really is a... Uh, it's it, This movie wouldn't work if you didn't have the multiple languages because that is, that is definitely an important layer here. So uh, Rosenthal is the character I find one of the characters I find so interesting in this movie um, in part because he's not part of that original pairing, but by the, but he is part of the final pairing, um, you know, which, which is, which is one of the, the sort of storytelling moves that, that Renoir makes. Um, And one of my favorite lines in the movie is when they're having this conversation about like, uh, why are you trying to escape? You know, Mm -hmm. this is in the, in the, the first prison camp Um, and they're, they're, they're clearly othering Rosenthal a little bit here, right? Because he's a Jew um, and he's, he's very wealthy. And so that's why they're kind of drawn to him because he shares his packages. But there's also this sense that he's also not a Baldu because he's not of the, you know, of the, uh, of the, the aristocracy. Um, And, 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 um, and Rosenthal says this great line where he says, yet, for all of your French roots, none of you own an acre of your own country. And then he goes on to say, here are all of the things that my family owns. And I love that he ends with three galleries of bona fide ancestors. <laughs> so there is this sense of like, uh, you know, that either, either that we have been wealthy for a long time, or we've been able to buy your ancestors, you know, like, like, and so, so, so it, it adds this, this extra class element into it, that there is the, that, that to say like, well, Rosenthal is not Boldu, but Rosenthal is also not Marshall, but there are ways where Rosenthal is on the bottom, but there's also ways where Rosenthal is on the top because, mm-hmm. you know, because, because of his wealth. So presumably he's wealthier than Boldu because he says that to Baldu as well to say right. like, you don't own an acre of your own country. And here, here is what my family is. So that, so you have, you have class, which is different than wealth, which is different than nationality, mm-hmm. which is different than religion. Mm-hmm. And all of these things, if you're paying attention, are, are are embedded in that. And I find that so, so interesting. And of course, um, Renoir is well aware of what's going on in Germany at this time in 1937. And of course, when the Germans invaded uh, Paris in 1940, uh, they seized this film and uh, it was it was I it was named uh, Cinematic Enemy Number One. Um, although ironically, it was because the Nazis took the film that a negative was actually preserved, only to be rediscovered, you know, many, many, many years later. But I think it's really, really interesting that um, Renoir is well aware of, and, and France, you know, uh, as, as m- many European countries were, was you know, in many ways very anti-Semitic. Uh, and he was he was well aware of that, and he goes to great lengths to kind of build that in the film. In fact, there's one moment it's it's a little bit cringeworthy, but at the same time, I know why it's there when when Marshall kind of jokingly calls Rosenthal a dirty Jew. Um, but I think at the same time, that's exactly what Renoir is trying to to cl- to clarify the equality uh, of, of all individuals. Well, that seems interesting because that's at the very end when he says it almost playfully. But yeah. then there's the scene before that when they almost split up after yeah. they've escaped, and he, there he's not saying it jokingly. He no. he actually like like opens up a little bit, and you realize, oh, there is this latent um, anti-Semitism in him yeah. as well, or at least at least like he's been brought up in a world where those messages are there, and it's almost as if he says it and walks away, and then sort of realizes like, what am I? Why did I say? I mean, you don't see any yeah. of this, but you kind of imagine like. Okay, like that was not okay what I just did. And 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 you see him almost immediately circle back. 
yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's a good time too to mention, Sam, in terms of the um some of the structural relationships in the film that Renoir has all of these triangular relationships, right? I mean, I think we've been outlining this, but just to make kind of explicit, so you don't have this one obvious one of 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 Marshall, Bordeaux, and Rosenthal, but then of course you get Bordeaux, Ralphenstein, and and Marshall, and, and Marshall, and then at the end you actually get Marshall, Rosenthal, and Elsa. So right. he he's he's playing with it's really fascinating the way he keeps putting these characters into these kind of triangular relationships that both shows both show separation and connection and usually connection along um, uh, different lines than the separation that is created. Mm -hmm. And then in rules of the game he does these love triangles. So oh, yeah. he's yeah. yeah you know so um, so okay so that the the Rosenthal line about not owning an acre of your own country is in this this scene where they're talking about reasons for escaping. So I wrote some of these down um, and because I found it really interesting when you listen to them all together. So for one, so Rosenthal's is, you know, he, he talks about uh, whether he's loyal to France or he's got something to fight for because of what they own and what they have. Others talk about boredom. Others talk about a desire to fight. Um, others talk about wanting to escape to see the Netherlands for basically the women, the wine and the cheese. Um <laughs> And uh, and then and then uh, Baldu says uh, his is a golf course is for golf, a tennis court is for tennis, and a prison camp is for escaping. Which is sort of saying like, I'm doing what what I do, sort of, or what I'm what I'm called to do in this moment. If I'm on a golf course, I'm called to golf. If I'm, you know, now I listen to those things, and it reminds me so much of like why did people go to fight in the war in the first place? And we pretty much, they pretty much just listed those things there. There's plenty of people who went to fight because they wanted to see the world, right? That's kind of the going to the Netherlands and like seeing mm -hmm. something beyond where I am. There's this desire to fight. There is this sense of boredom in, you know, in the, you know, at the, at the end of the 19th century. So this is a, you know, going off to adventure. There's this sense of duty. There's the sense of we have something to defend. So I feel like this whole thing is also kind of like, you know, pointing out the reasons people fought in the first place. And then there's one other person who explains why he's fighting, which is the teacher who mm -hmm. has the fun. I mean, it is a genuinely funny moment where he explains it's because I'm a vegetarian. <laughs> so I was healthy enough to fight where my brother who, who, you know, didn't, didn't take up vegetarianism. He was, he was deemed unfit to fight. Yes, that's a great, that is a that is a great that's a great moment indeed and and I should also say that back to the notion of um, prison camps are for escaping that um, the film is also kind of a uh, an or text for a lot of uh, prison prisoner of war films probably most notably the great escape in terms of how they uh, you know dispose of the dirt but Stalag seventeen as well would be another film that this that this influenced. Yeah, yeah, no, I. It's funny because I, I've, I've never seen the Great Escape or Solid Seventeen, but when they dispose of the dirt, I was like, Shawshank Redemption. That's exactly how he yeah, does that, it there yeah, too. too. Sure. And 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 one of my favorite verbs to use is to Shawshank something, meaning to slowly get rid of something so people don't notice. And now I need to change it to Grand Illusioning because because <laughs> I want to give Renoir credit. He he came up with that with that idea. Now this this scene of, about where they're talking about their different reasons and they're kind of getting into class and some of these things. This has an, an even better mirror or parallel scene in. Um, in Ralphenstein's prison when they're mm. talking about diseases, talking about how they're going to die, you know, and, and they talk about uh, diseases belonging to different classes. Right. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, the, so, so uh, Baldu says the pox used to be our privilege, but we lost it. Everything is popularized. Um, and they talk about how uh, cancer and gout, um, aren't working class diseases, but they will be. And then they're like, well, what does the middle class die of, you know, and what do the intellectuals die of? And, you know, and, there, and then there is this sense that uh, we each die of our own class diseases. If we didn't, excuse me, if war didn't make all germs equal, mm. which is quite an interesting statement about what a different version of what Ralphenstein and Baldu talk about in terms of the war sort of leveling things out and, and killing the idea of, you know the 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 aristocratic families. You know another version of that is is war makes all germs equal. <laughs> um, 
so we get we get Baldu and Rolfenstein talking about their connection. This was such an interesting, um, I think, was such an interesting thing because we get we get um, Rolfenstein early in the movie, and we see that he is, you know, his. I think one of his first lines is, "If their officers invite them to invite them to lunch," <laughs> which is an interesting thing. And then we we see this this friendship and attraction that especially um, Rolfenstein feels for Baldu. Uh, you know where he invites him to his you know invites him to his room um and and uh you know baldu seems to more so embrace the leveling or the end of this and Rolfenstein seems to resist it more like like for him it is more tragic for baldu there is sort of this Maybe he's resigned to it a little bit more mm-hmm. um which I find I find those conversations really interesting between them. Yeah, that, that's inter- that, that is an interesting point, Sam. I, there, there's a little bit of me, I'm not sure exactly why this is, but even though I'm on Baldu's side in terms of his recognition that the time of the aristocracy is coming to an end. And, you know, so, I mean, it, it's interesting because on the one hand, he can't fully be friends with Marshall, but at the same time, he recognizes that... Um, you can't turn back the tide of history, that, that, that things are changing. And yet, when, when Rauffenstein reaches out to him, even though I think Boldu is right, I, I always feel this little twinge of regret that poor Rauffenstein is going to ultimately be rejected by, by Boldu. Um, and I don't know why that is. But maybe it's partly because one of the things that, again, this is so typical of Renoir, he has so humanized Rauffenstein that... I, you know, he's, he's not really a villain, right? He, yeah. he, 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 because, because of that similarity between him and Baldu, they are both representatives of an aristocratic order that is passing away. And Renoir is not, is not saying that that order was wrong or, or evil. I mean, in some ways, Renoir has a genuine nostalgia for the aristocracy. And so as a result, I think you end up, I, I, to me, it's tremendous that you end up actually feeling for both of them. At least I'm hoping it's not just my idiosyncrasy that I, that I feel so sympathetic towards Rauffenstein, but I think it's a genuine dilemma of emotion that, that Renoir is putting you in because I think he recognizes, you know, that to simply reject the past as completely wrongheaded is a very blinkered view of history. So yes, the aristocratic rule had its limitations. The aristocratic rule is coming to an end. And in some respects, that's a good thing. But in other respects, it means that now you in the middle class can also have cancer and gout. So it's it, it's that, in, that that's what I meant earlier when I talked about Renoir as a humanist. It's a very balanced and complex view of, his, of historical change. And it's not the kind of subtlety that you get in a lot of films and how he manages to do that and yet at the same time be perfectly clear is is almost miraculous i think a big part of it is eric von stroheim i think he's so good in this he's so sad and lonely <laughs> like like he does a good job because even you, we get one little cutaway of the soldiers of the german guards or soldiers talking and they're kind of making fun of the geranium and and they're mm. like you know it's a good thing i'm here because i keep order is what the or something like that that he says and it's like yeah i think i think von stroheim just plays that that that's so well and he's a charming guy and mm-hmm. you know and 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 it is funny like one of the first things he says when they show up there is like to avoid claims of german barbarism i run things on according to the french order or something and he hands them the manuals you know uh for for like the rules of the camp um i do think it's interesting that that twice uh Boldu brings up Marshall and Ro- and Rosenthal like when yes. when when he asks about his word and he and, yeah. and he says to uh you know he says you know what about the word what about their words and and it's it's one of the 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 darker moments of Rofenstein when he says I'm supposed to take the word of a the way he says Rosenthal is like like you can you can hear he's not outwardly anti-semitic but there is something about the way that mm-hmm. he says Rosenthal. That's like, oh, I did not like that, especially with a German accent. Yes, um, yes. You know, so so that um, 
so that definitely is uh is kind of this um this moment where Baldu is bringing that up uh and and Rosenthal or excuse me um Rothenstein is rejecting that and then there is you know when when he asks you know why did you invite me here and he says well you know you're, you're an officer and he says well they're also officers mm-hmm. and and it's one of the great lines of this movie when Rothenstein says a charming legacy of the French Revolution that they also get to be officers that and in some ways and this is where we're seeing a little bit of nationality he's like well that's sort of a French problem you guys had this revolution so you've already, you've had a little bit of leveling already maybe you guys have accelerated the end of the aristocracy um you know a little bit more and and I I really loved I really loved that moment well, I also, uh, I've been wanting to say, Sam, this is one of the ways in which um, I thought we might begin by talking about how about this film is like and unlike um, Paths of Glory. Uh, but, but, you know, one of the ways in which it is like Paths of Glory is it is very concerned with the relate with the um, privileges of the of the officer class. Mm-hmm. Um, but unlike Paths of, well, and also like Paths of Glory, it kind of, it makes a contrast between that class and uh, and the other classes that that, that exist, and so it's it's interesting to me that um, in in this particular exchange, Baldu is wants to stand up for the officer class as actually elevating what you might call the working class, but Ralphenstein uses the working class distinctions to kind of under un, even undermine the officer class distinctions. So both of these films, I think, are really interested in in how class is established. And which kind of class kind of trumps another kind of class? Mm-hmm. And then we get the metaphor of the geranium, which which I really mm-hmm. I really loved because he says, you know, this is the only flower that grows here. Nothing grows here but ivy and nettles. And there mm-hmm. is this sense of like like it is the symbol of the of of this dying what he sees as this dying beautiful thing. And then it's important to note that that mm-hmm. he he kills it, he cuts it mm-hmm. when when he himself has killed Baldu you know he he very reluctantly shoots at him um but then there is this sense of like okay this thing that I've been holding on to now it's really dead because I've I've even played my role in this um and I think that's a a, just a really powerful moment yeah I just love I love the way he apologizes to Baldu for I mean they have that they have that great exchange about you know I was so clumsy and Baldu was like well I was 150 yards away I was shooting it for your leg yeah but you know I I understand but and and it is quite apparent from that conversation too that Baldu was not he wasn't committing suicide I mean he, he you know he said I never knew a stomach wound could hurt so much I mean he wasn't expecting to be killed he was just so it was a sacrifice, but he wasn't trying to make the ultimate sacrifice. And yet, and yet, once he does, you end up with this very, you know, tender scene between between the two of them. And it and and then you get this, you know, they kind of pronounce the one of the they underscore one of the main themes of the of the film, which we've already talked about, which is the notion that our our aristocratic order is passing away. And in a sense, it kind of the, that theme kind of requires dramatically that one of them literally die. And then, as you say, the flower gets cut both as a kind of representation of the passing of that order and maybe even some of the beauty that it represented. But at the same time, it's it's it, it also re- kind of is a reflection of that huge corsage that we saw at the beginning mm-hmm. where the fallen French officer now becomes this little drain, this little flower at the end. Absolutely. I want to I want to just say a word here because we, we've hinted at this, but this movie has such an interesting story structure because, I mean, it has three acts, but lots of movies have three acts. This is almost three distinct films where, you know, where where um, and what I like about it is that each act has its own unique setting its own unique cast almost like like mm-hmm. and it's unclear when we move from one to the other who's going to continue. Yeah. You know, like, 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 which are the characters? Um, and, and so that leaves you wondering, you know, kind of whose story is this, you know, and you get to the end and, and, and I think that the, one of the original titles for this was, it's not this, but it's something like, you know, the adventures of captain Marischal or something like, mm-hmm. like there was this sense of like, well, this is his story. And it, it really is. In, I mean, when you get to the end, you're like, I think that was it was his story in lots of ways, but there are big chunks of the movie where it doesn't feel like that because we have these these sort of different versions. Um, 
in so so in Act One is when we're at uh, we we see Baldu and Marshall get shot down, and they go to the Hallbach prison camp. So here we get, as I said, Baldu among the Frenchmen, and we get this great cast of characters. I need to tip my hat to some people that I love. So I, I forgot that Rosenthal is not originally in the movie at the beginning like like this is this is the two of them and then rosenthal is just another mm-hmm. member of the camp so it's not clear that he would be one that would continue mm-hmm. on but he ends sure. up you also get uh and, and i should say uh mars uh, uh rosenthal is played by marcel dalio who is the the lead uh one of the leads of rules of the game mm-hmm. he's one of my favorite actors in this mm-hmm. in, in in both of these movies uh, and then other faces that pop up, uh, Gaston Mardot, who plays the engineer. And I kept mm-hmm. looking at that guy thinking, I've seen him before. And then I realized, oh, he plays Schumacher in in um, Rules of the Game. Yes. And then yeah. and then my favorite, my absolute favorite, and I think it's one of Renoir's favorite, is uh, Julien uh, Cardet, who plays the vaudeville performer. Oh, he is He's amazing. He's amazing. And I was thinking like, oh, I get to watch another movie with him. And I was heartbroken that it's like, Oh, when when we move camps, we don't uh, keep done, and and it's not like it's not like those folks get a farewell. They're just like, well, now this now the movie has changed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we get the you know you get the tunnel escape plan, the show. You get the great the great scene where they sing the French national anthem, oh. which gets echoed in in. Uh, I mean, that just becomes like a movie thing, mostly because of Casablanca. Yep, you know, yep. pick that up. Um, uh, and that is the thing that then sends uh, Marshall into solitary confinement. Mm-hmm. And again, you get such a sympathetic view of at least some of the prison guards. I, my heart is broken by the German speaking mm-hmm. prison guard. Who's like, he's like, what can I do with some cigarettes, a harmonic? Like, here's the yeah. things that I, cause we know that those guys don't have a lot. They're sitting around drinking or eating cabbage soup that they hate. Like they're, they have it worse off than the prisoners. And he, there he is like emptying his pockets being like, come on, man. Like it's okay. I I really love that. And then when, when he leaves and the, um, the other guard is like, what's that all about? His response is just the war is too long. It's like, it's like, we, we all just need to be done with this. Yeah. And it's interesting. Marshall is the one who keeps saying it'll be over soon. But the other thing about that scene that I is really important, uh, Sam is that it's also about language. Because mm-hmm. Marichal is driven crazy by the fact that he hasn't heard French. Yes. And so that, yeah. So there's that sense that his his national identity is really important to him. His native language is important to him. So the movie feels like it's moving in a direction. We've got the the tunnel. They're ready to escape, and then out of nowhere, a guard comes in and just says, "All right, everybody's moving to a new camp." And it's and it's again, it's like he pulls the rug out from under the characters, but also us as viewers. And it, it kind of opens up to like, okay, this movie can be anything now because we all of a sudden just lose, you know, more than half the cast are gone. People we've been paying attention to and enjoying they're gone. And then we move to, to Wintersborne. This is where we meet, uh, we meet um, Ralphenstein. I'm so happy to see Rosenthal show up again because he's not there initially. He's just ends up in the room again. Um, so we get we get all the stuff we talked about with um, with Baldu and Rothenstein. We get the flute escape plan. We get uh, Baldu's sort of uh, creating a diversion, and however we want to think about the sacrifice or you know his death. Um, we get that great line where he says, uh, you know, for a commoner dying in war is a tragedy, oh, but yeah. for you and me, it's a good way out. Mm-hmm. And then and then Rothenstein says, I missed my chance. You know, what mm-hmm. I mean, I got shot down. Like I basically saying i should have died when i got shot down my problem is i lived and now this is my lot mm-hmm. again this is why he's sympathetic too is like yeah, you that's right. feel for him right yeah yeah so that leads to the escape and then we get a third act which is entirely different now like it's it's almost i mean it still is a war movie because they're 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 hiding out but it becomes this this little love story that happens in the, in the third act. And we get a, a new set of characters. Again, we get, uh, we get Elsa and Lottie. Um, so we first start with them kind of on, on the run as much as they can run. They almost split up. Um, and then they, they have this life together, which seems like it's for a little while because, because Rosenthal seems injured for a while. And we get the Christmas scene. Um <clears throat> And then we eventually get their escape into Switzerland. You want to talk about the the Elsa Lottie stuff? Because that's the part we haven't really gotten into. Yeah, but before I do that, I just want to back up a little bit to Taco to just say one more thing about Boldu and the escape. And that is that Boldu 
who has had this kind of disdain for theatrics. You know, when they first oh, interesting. When, when, when they when they start the first part of that um, diversion and everybody's uh, flute is comp, comp, confiscated, Baldu pulls one out of his sleeve, and it's it's almost like he's he's echoing Cartier. Uh, and, and, and he, it's, and he actually is playing a kind of foolish part. And so to me, that's a really important way in which he dramatizes or really acts out his, um, his actual sympathy for, for the escapees that he's really enabled, he's really enabled, he's really allowed himself to play to a lower class, you know, standard than he has in the past. So anyway, that's one, one to make sure I got that out. Absolutely. Absolutely. So do you want to talk about, do you want to talk about, uh, Elsa and Lottie and and uh, Rosenthal and Marshall. Yeah, you know wh- wh- one of the one of the things that I, that I love about this is the whole. Um, this is back to the in my, in my mind back to the kind of anti-Semitism issue. The fact that they set this at Christmas and they do the crèche and um, and Rosenthal talks about the the idea. Do you want to eat my ancestor because it's all potato based? Mm-hmm. I, so I just love the fact that they use a Christmas scene. To, to and, and and it's it's odd because I don't quite know what to make of Raffenstein's crucifix, but you know that's the other Christian symbol we've had. Mm-hmm. And now we have this nativity scene, and it becomes a way for a German and a French and a Jew, as well as a uh, a man, a woman, and a child, to all kind of be united around this little magical uh, event that that Christmas is with the candles on the tree, and it's just. I don't know it's just it's just a wonderful symbol of um, even though it's a Christian symbol, it's also suggesting there's something going on here that just transcends religious uh, differences. And then of course you have Marshall trying to learn a little bit of German and not quite getting Blaue Augen quite right. Um, and as I said earlier, the idea that I mean, when when this when this scene first started, I thought, well, for sure it's going to be it's going to be Rosenthal also because he speaks German, mm-hmm. but. But love knows no language, right? Or the language of love transcends any other kind of language. And so it becomes Marshall and Elsa that have this deep relationship with each other. Also with her, you get that that incredibly poignant moment, right? When she points to the pictures and talks about how her two brothers and her husband have died in all these battles, which she claimed, which she says are, quote, our greatest victories. And then the picture of the table, right, with it with the chairs and, and mm-hmm. the lot of sitting there. I mean, the way that the way that Renoir can break your heart mm-hmm. and then and then lift your spirits five minutes later, it's it's amazing. So I wanna I wanna talk because we don't have a ton of time left here. Uh, I wanna talk about this title, The Grand Illusion. Mm. Because there's lots of ways you can go with what is the grand illusion that that refers to. Yeah. Um, so, so what, what, what do you think, what do you think is meant by that? I don't know that there's one grand illusion. I think there are a lot of grand illusions. And to me, one of the things this film was telling us is that the illusions are those various created, those very, those various barriers. Well, this is one set of illusions, those various barriers we create that separate us from each other. So I think that when Rosenthal says at the end of the film, frontiers are made by men, nature doesn't give a damn, that's one illusion. I think the other illusion is the illusion of war, is the illusion that war can actually accomplish something, uh, that we fight these wars because we think we're going to gain territory, we're going to gain security, we're going to gain um, uh, opulence, whatever, but ultimately that that too is an illusion. Yeah, I, I the the... There, there were a couple moments where it made me think about about that idea of the war as, as, as that kind of illusion. There's when Baldu says, "Out there, ch- uh, children play soldiers. In here, mm-hmm. soldiers play like children." And then when we first meet Raffenstein and he's giving them the tour, he says, "My soldiers aren't young, but they enjoy playing soldier." <laughs> and it's like so. So he's using that same idea of that that this that they're playing soldier. And then another thing we see at at uh, Wintersborne is a snowball fight, yes, <laughs> which is, which is what children would do to play war. And yes. they don't comment on it. It's just in the background, yeah. but you're like, that's, they might as well be in trenches lobbing artillery at each other. And mm-hmm. instead they're throwing snowballs and it's like, well, that, that might be better or not might be, that would be better if we could resolve our problems with snowball fights rather than artillery. 
This is the kind of okay. So, so here's a big difference between a filmmaker like Renoir and a filmmaker like Kubrick. These are very similar insights about the futility of war and the basic nature of human beings. But for Kubrick, war and the futility of war becomes a a strong condemnation and a revelation of the fundamental weakness and vulnerability and foolishness of human nature. And for Renoir, it becomes an opportunity to show that there actually still is nobility and there still is the possibility of human connection. So same topic, very different ways to think about it. Well, and let's think about the closing line of this movie as they they eventually leave and and um, Marshall, you know, promises that that he'll come back and they'll move to France together. They leave and they're not sure about if they're in Switzerland or not. And that's where he says the thing about, you know, borders are, are, are man-made and nature doesn't care. And then we see the German soldiers marching and one of them shoots and then the, and he's going to shoot again. And the other says, don't shoot there in Switzerland. And he says, good for them. For it's sure. like, like they, they got out of this, you know? Yeah. And, and, and like, like that's, that, that tells you something about even the soldiers whose job it is to kill these other soldiers in a moment where these are escaped prisoners who, you know, have a bounty on their head, presumably it's like, no, they made it like, isn't that, 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 that's a pretty powerful ending. Now, it do you is. know about the alternate ending to this movie? Yes, that, yeah, uh, how do you... yeah, originally there was going to be a reunion in Paris after the war, and there's two empty chairs for Marichal and, and Rosenthal. So it's really interesting to me that um, uh, that Renoir chooses to end on a much more optimistic or hopeful note. Right, right. No, I, I think, yeah, I think that would be a, it would be a fitting ending, but it, but it would it would feel very different than watching these two figures, which you can barely make out as they're running to that chalet or whatever in Switzerland. And there's this sense that, that they made it and it leaves you with all the possibilities of like, maybe Marshall does come back. Maybe, you know, like you, like you don't, you know, it, it, it gives you hope of what, what might be possible after, after war. Yeah, but I there mean, is still, but there still is this sense that they're going to go back and fight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the original ending would work fine, except it, it, yeah, it brings the kind of closure to to the story that I think is less interesting than the openness of yeah, maybe they do go back and get killed. We just don't know. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Anything else you want to talk about with this? Yeah, I just I just want to say briefly, we glance at this, but we we I, I did I wanted to reinforce the fact that the movie was based both on Renoir's own experiences as well as. Um, there was a, uh, a, when when Renoir was flying reconnaissance, his plane was rescued by another another uh, flying ace. And Renoir ran into that fellow years later when he was making a film and they started kind of trading war stories. So he based a lot of the incidents of the film on those anecdotes as well as his own experience. And finally, I should mention that Jean Gabin is wearing um, uh, uh, Renoir's aviator jacket. So it's 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 another one of those films where you know it's a little bit hard to separate reality from uh, from uh, from fiction. And we didn't talk. We 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 hinted at sort of the history of the the negative of this film and how yes. it's been uh, reintroduced. Renoir does it again in the fifties, but then um, but then in the nineties there is another reintroduction. And actually, this movie has the distinction of being. Uh, Criterion Collection DVD spine number one. This is the first DVD mm. put out by Criterion, um, which would have been right, I think, when that that um, restoration happens. Yeah, and it's interesting that both of Renoir's two greatest films have the same kind of checkered history in terms of preservation and restoration. Mm-hmm. Which is amazing because 1937 is not that old. Like, like no. you know, like this is so. So that's uh, that's that that that's really interesting to think about. Barrett, what do you have for us for next week? Uh, one more World War One film, Sam, uh, uh, and and a, a Howard Hawks film. I think it'll be our third Howard Hawks, maybe. Uh, Four, fourth, fourth. New York from uh, 1941 with Gary Cooper. Oh wow! All right, yeah. this is our fourth Hawks because we watched Hawks. Bringing Up Baby, Rio Bravo, and Scarface, right? Oh, it's Scarface. I was thinking about Scarface, right? Yeah. And then off. Off the podcast, you and I did Red River, so uh, that's right. That's yeah, right. Yeah. I'm warming up to Hawks as we watch more. So, well, yeah, I mean, it, it, Hawks is what he, now he's one of those guys that's a little challenge to get back to the, the uh, exercise you started us off with. If I showed you a film, would you know it was a Howard Hawks film? It's hard to say. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, Barrett, uh, thank you so much for uh, for recommending this film, for having this conversation. This is this is really a great film, and I think I, I love. Like I said, it made me love Rules of the Game more because it made me realize even more of what he's up to there. Um, and that's not a diminishment of this film. I think they're I think they're uh, they're such a beautiful pair to think about, uh, and they're thinking about some similar questions and some different questions. Um, there's a lot more women in Rules of the Game than there is in in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, uh, but but this was really fantastic. So thank you for recommending this. Thank you for having this conversation. That is all the time that we have, but we will be back next week to talk about Sergeant York in the video store. Mm-hmm.